Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. All right, well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 5 through 24. You can follow along with me in your own Bible. It's also provided in the Pew Bible that's in front of you. You can also find it on your smartphone. You can also find it in the bulletin. There are plenty of ways for you to find it. If you would like to follow along, we would welcome you in doing that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name is Sean Slate, and I'm the pastor here, and we are glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. Like, for instance, the Net Ravens, who are here with us, are in the Final Four at the big championship here in Knoxville, and so we're glad to have them. Uh, you could also be at home preparing for the SEC uh, baseball championship against the Florida Gators uh, this afternoon. Go Vols! And Dave Parmley, who's in the foyer, has said we could get him to say Go Vols. We would have a great day. Uh, but anyway, you could also be downtown at the uh, Caribbean Jerk uh, festival uh, down in World's Fair, which I think jerk is spices, not human beings. And so, uh, I don't know. And then uh, you could be at home binging the Obi-Wan that just came out on the Disney Plus, or you could be recovering from the awesome that is uh, Top Gun that came out. It's incredible, by the way. But anyway, you're not doing any of those things. You're here this morning, and it is great to have you with us. And the reality is, that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than to worship Jesus and to consider his claims upon your life, to reflect upon, oh, it's also Monaco uh, this morning, right Right now. Anyway, I'm glad you're watching. Uh, but anyway, it's good to have you with us. Uh, you know, there's nothing better that you could be doing, Aaron, than worshiping Jesus and reflecting upon the beauty of his kingdom and the power of his resurrection. So I do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer. Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, who are trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. We love to go to the Jerk Festival. We love to watch Monaco. We love to watch baseball. But we really love to gather together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind one another of that great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. A people who are trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that over the last kind of year and a little bit, 
we have been in and out of this book called 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're coming to the end. Today is our last day in the book. And so we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 24. And what I want us to consider is this. Resurrection connection, right? Resurrection connection. All right, so with that in mind, let's look together. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, verses 5 through 24. It's long, so just bear with me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do uh, be done in the Lord. Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours." Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church and their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful uh, for this, your word, uh, your kindness, and that you are not a God who delights in remaining hidden or silent, but you love to make yourself known. And you've done this uh, in your word, by your spirit. And ultimately, you've done it in the person and work of Jesus. It is our prayer now that as we attend unto your word, you would attend unto us. That we might see lovely, beautiful things of you in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Tina Turner probably isn't quite as popular uh, today as she once was. But growing up, I remember loving her music. And one of her most famous songs, at least to me, was, was called, What's Love Got to Do With It? Right? What's love got to do with it? And, and basically, it, it's a chorus with a few oohs and a few yes and a couple runs. And then it's the chorus again repeated over and over and over again. And it kind of goes like this. Uh, I won't sing it. Uh, what's love got to do with it? 
What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And it's, just, it's actually this incredibly sad song about this idea that our bodies just do what our bodies do. And in the end, uh, your heart and your loves are really irrelevant. But I want you to consider what a life without love might actually be like. I want, I want you to think about a community uh, that is controlled by something other than love, what that might be like. If we are a community of people who are just controlled and enslaved by our emotions or by our impulses, then we can do whatever we want to one another. If we are a community that is just a slave to winning, then if you lose, then you don't belong among us. If we are a community of people that are all about getting it right, then if you get it wrong, then you have got to go. If we are only a community that is going to be controlled by having fun and being comfortable, then when our life together is no longer fun and comfortable, then bye-bye, right? We're out. And here's the problem. A person or a community that exists for itself and for its own self-advancement will always implode. A community or a person who exists for themselves will always implode upon themselves. Because for a community or for a person to remain connected to others, love must rule. Love must control us. Because without love, all we are doing is negotiating and exploiting one another to get what we want. And in the end, it will eventually destroy us. And this is why Paul is pretty adamant in the way he ends. You see in verse 14, he says, Let all that you do be done in love. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Let all that you do be done in love, right? Let all that you do be done in love. Would you say that with me? Let all that you do be done in love. And this was very important for the Corinthians to hear because in many ways their chief problem was that they did not love one another. You, you probably remember the discussion in this book back in chapter 12. The Corinthians were fighting over who had the most important and who had the most significant gifts. And so Paul's writing to them, and you might remember that the way chapter 12 ends is he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. And what he's saying is, your gifts are important, your gifts are valuable, but I will show you a more excellent way to relate to one another. Not just with your gifts, not just in your successes, but with your love. And so chapter 13, the beautiful chapter of love, Paul begins to write. And he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. See, the Corinthians, they, they loved their gifts. They celebrated their gifts. They defined themselves by their gifts. They were even dividing over their gifts. 
The problem wasn't their gifts. The problem was that they did not love. And they had bought into this idea that God's work of salvation and that God's gift of his spirit was exclusively for them. That salvation was for them to become wise. And if they would become wise, then they wouldn't need other people to teach them. That salvation for them was about becoming powerful. And so they wouldn't ever need help so that they would never be weak. And if anyone was weak, they had to go. They thought that God had saved them and given the spirit to them so that they could be free so that no one could tell them how to live or no one could tell them what to do. And they thought that God had come to them and met with them so that they could be complete and mature, lacking nothing, therefore needing nothing. And for them, Christianity had become a way or a means of self-improvement, self-fulfillment, and self-actualization. And throughout this whole letter, from beginning to end, Paul has been saying, My brothers, would you please listen to me? The Spirit of God has been given to you so that you might begin to learn to love just as I have loved you. You see, love is the vocation of the Christian. Love is our vocation. And this is why here at Redeemer, over and over, we say, what is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what does it mean that we're a church? It means that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God. And we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And we say we are trying because we know we have not arrived. We say we are trying because we know that we need one another to teach us and to help us. We, we say that we're trying because we know that we need God to continue to work in our life and to teach us and to show us what it means to love. And yet for some reason as Christians, it is so easy for us to become self-consumed. To think about Christianity merely through the lens of ourselves. To think that Christianity is all about me and always thinking about, do I know enough? Have I done enough? Have I read enough? Have I witnessed enough? Uh, wondering if I'm getting it right enough, if I'm doing it right enough. Because what most of us want from Christianity is a way to secure the life that we actually want. What we want from Christianity is a way to project ourselves to the world in a particular way. What we want from Christianity is a way to become who we wish we were. And like the Corinthians, we too use Christianity as an attempt to make us feel wise, to make us feel powerful, to make us feel free, or to make us feel complete. But maybe the thing that God is trying to work in us is love. One of my best friends just learned that his young son has a chromosomal disorder. And uh, his son is always going to be on the spectrum. Uh, communication skills are always going to be lacking. They learned this week that his son has a degenerative muscular disorder. And as he grows older, his body, his muscles might not actually be able to hold his body. He might actually have to have a chair as he gets older. And as this diagnosis has come to my friend, it's been really difficult for my friend and for his wife. Uh, 
my friend is probably the most gifted young man that I know, other than some of y'all, of course. But my friend and his wife are some of the most beautiful people that I've ever known. They're incredibly smart. They live in one of the coolest cities in America. They travel the world on a regular basis. They have the life that almost all of us wish we had. And as a pastor, I look at this young man, and he's one of the most gifted pastors I know. His reputation is growing, and he's being invited to speak at a bunch of different conferences. And this diagnosis uh, has been really hard for him. And I was with him a couple weeks ago, and he said to me, Slate, I have to learn a new vocation. I have to learn how to love. I've spent my whole life and all of my Christianity trying to learn how to be successful. And now I have to learn how to love the child that God has given to me. And to do this is going to mean that I have to give up a lot of time. My golf game is actually going to suffer. It means that a lot of our money is going to now have to be set aside for his care. And it probably means that everything that I thought that I would accomplish in my career, I probably won't accomplish. And God has got to free me from myself to teach me how to love. And this is what Jesus is wanting to do in all of us. He is wanting to free us from ourselves to teach us this difficult and yet beautiful vocation of love. Right? And here's the point. Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Would you say that with me? Let all that you do be done in love. Well, why? Why should everything we do be done in love, because that is the way of Jesus. <laughs> Throughout this book, Paul has been confronting the Corinthians, and he's been confronting us with our lack of love. And the way he confronts us with our lack of love is not by shame and not by yelling at us. The way he confronts us with our lack of love is by showing us the love of Jesus and one of the things that we do every week here at Redeemer during the communion uh, liturgy is we say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And why do we say these things? We say them because those are the summary reminder of the work of God's love on our behalf. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And if you go back through the book, you see him talking about the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus over and over again. It begins in chapter 1. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on in chapter 2. And I, when I come to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He's saying, I didn't come to you in strength. I didn't come to you in power. I didn't come to you with everything. I came to you with the word of the cross. And this is essential for us to keep in mind because what the cross tells us is that Jesus has done everything 
that all that we have comes from him and he is all that we need and that he loves us. And the cross is proof that God joyfully and willingly gave his life in love for us. And if Jesus did not withhold his life from us, why would he withhold any good thing from us? And therefore, it's Jesus who is the one who loves us, and it's his love then that unites us to one another. Because if Jesus loves you, then I have to love you. And if if Jesus loves me, then, then you have to love me. And if Jesus was willing to sacrifice for you, then I must be willing to sacrifice for you. And this is what the cross tells us. That he sacrificed and gave himself in love for us. And this begins to illuminate verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And what he's saying is the thing that unites us, the thing that brings us together, the thing that gives us love, I mean life, is actually the love of Jesus. Jesus is the one who welcomes us into his family. Not our gifts, not our strengths, not our successes, but the love of Christ for us as made evident through his death on the cross. You see, we love because he first loved us. And when we look at the cross, are we not completely humble? Do do we not see that he's done everything And yet, sadly, as Christians, is it not true that we still look at the cross and then we elevate our gifts, we elevate our successes and think, these are the things that prove that I'm worthy of being loved. These are the things that show that I'm loved. What the gospel is saying to each of us is, please stop looking at yourself and please look at the cross of Jesus because it is there and only there that you will see and know his love. You see, Christ has died. But the good news of the gospel is that he didn't just die, he has also risen. And that's the point of these last seven weeks as we've been going through the resurrection passage of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Jesus died, but he did not remain dead. And he defeated death. And here's what's amazing. In the same way that Jesus' death was for our sins. In the same way that when Jesus suffered, he suffered for us. In the same way that when Jesus endured the wrath of God, he endured the wrath of God for us. Uh, In the same way, he defeated death for us. This is amazing. Jesus didn't just defeat death for himself. He didn't just defeat death and come out of the grave so that he didn't have to stay in the grave. Jesus went through death and paved a way that we might follow him into resurrection life so that we too might join him in the presence of our loving Heavenly Father. His death was for us in love. His resurrection was for us in love. Right? Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Christ will come again. And that's what you see in verse 22 Our Lord, come. It's the prayer, Maranatha. The prayer to God that he would come. And that's the promise of the Bible as well, that that Christ will come again for those whom he loves. 
And this is why if you read all the way to the end of the Bible, you come to this book that's called Revelation. And at the end of Revelation, uh, do you remember how the people of God are described? As a bride. Beautifully adorned, beautifully prepared for her husband. As you come to the end of Revelation, you come to Revelation 19, do you remember the way that uh, his coming is celebrated? It's a feast. It's not just any feast, it's a wedding feast. What does this tell us? What do these images tell us? They tell us that everything that Jesus has done for us has been done in love. And this then becomes the pattern for the Christian life. That we die, that we might live, so that we might dwell together. And this is what the Spirit of God is working into his church. He's working into us a life that is not oriented around ourselves, but a life of love that begins to spill out for the good of the world. And this is why Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Would you say that with me? Let all that you do be done in love. And again, one of the things that this means for us is that we cannot and we must not exist for ourselves. If you just do a quick scan of this passage, what I want you to notice is all the places that Paul mentions by name. Verse 1, Galatia, verse 3. Jerusalem, verse 5, Macedonia, verse 8, Ephesus, verse 15, Achaia, verse uh, 19, Asia. And then I want you to remember that when Paul is writing, he's writing a letter to the Corinthians while he lives in Ephesus. And I think this is powerful because at a very early date before the internet, uh, Christianity was making us global citizens. That God's love was lifting our eyes to see people in places other than ourselves. And to care about our brothers and sisters around the world. And it is a reminder to us that God is at work all over the place. Yes, he's at work in Knoxville and we rejoice in it and we're blessed by it. But he's also at work in New York and Rome and London and Cape Town and Bristol and uh, Johnson City and... He's at work in Richmond. He's at work all over the world. God is at work. And his loving gaze does not rest upon one particular place. But his heart is to reconcile all things to himself. And I think that this is really important for us because the heart of God is a heart that must begin to lift our eyes to see him. And to see what he is doing and to rejoice and support what he is doing. And, and this is especially the case when he's doing something somewhere else that we wish he was doing right here. I mean, it's true, right? Sometimes God is doing things in other places that we wish he was doing among us. And that was going on in Corinth. The Corinthians wanted Paul to come and visit them. And he says in verse 9, God's provided a door, a wide open door of effective work for me in Ephesus. I can't come to you now. And they wanted Apollos to come. And Apollos was unable to come, it says in verse 12. You see, God was at work. And he's doing different things in different places. 
And, and this is why we love to say here at Redeemer that we're a community of people who desire to reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors in Urban and University Knoxville. And hopefully, in some way, it will spill out into the entire earth. Because we recognize that God and his kindness has placed us here on this little corner. We have hopes and dreams for our corner. We have hopes and dreams for our city. And we hope that the beautiful things that God would do among us would spill out into the entire world. Maybe some of you will go and become missionaries. I don't know. Some of you will go and plant a church. I don't know. We hope it would spill out to the entire world. But we also hope, because we know that God is at work in other places, that our eyes would see what he's doing. And that through our friendships with our friends in New York and D.C. and Memphis and Durham and Chicago and Tuscaloosa and Tucson and uh, Madison and Charlotte and Wheaton, that what God's doing there would somehow come back to us. And we would learn more of our Father's love for us. And we would learn how to celebrate what he's doing. And we would participate in what he's doing so that we might more and more learn of the love of Jesus. Uh, Leslie Newbegin was a missionary to India, and he was the bishop of Madras. And he tells a story of visiting a church. And after the service, he had, I don't know if it was lunch or dinner, with the elders. And he asked this question to the elders, and he said, what function does this church perform? And they all looked at each other. They were kind of quiet for a little bit. And then one of them said, well, it caters to the needs of its members. And then the bishop said, then you should be disbanded. And he went on to say that becoming a Christian does not mean the transfer of one self-centered orientation to another. It means being so turned around in your tracks that you begin to share in God's saving work for all mankind. It means becoming so related to Jesus that you begin to learn and uh, to follow him in the fellowship of his people and bearing the sin and sorrow of the world and begin, therefore, to taste the powers of the new world, the world to come, and so begin to hope and love. You see, to love requires that we lift our eyes beyond ourselves and we begin to see our neighbors. And part of what that means is that we're going to have to learn how to celebrate one another. See this in verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Look, y'all, love requires that we encourage and we serve one another. And this means that we really ought to become a people who thank people by name and to their faces for the ways that they have refreshed our souls. There's a caricature that all of you know about Christian, Christianity, and there's a caricature about the church, which is that it's just a critical community. And the reason why the church is caricatured as a critical community is because churches are often filled with critical people. That's why, that's why the caricature exists, right? And, uh, and here's, here's reality. At times, love requires a well-placed critique. And love requires learning how to receive a critique. But Paul is saying 
the church actually needs to be filled with thankful people, not critical people. The church should be filled with thankful people. Notice again what Paul said, verse 17, give recognition to such people. We should encourage those and recognize those who refresh our souls. We should thank them and honor them for their service to us. And it seems to me the reality is this, is that encouragement breeds transformation much more quickly and much more beautifully than pure criticism. What will change you? What will change me? What will change us? Not just a lot of criticism, but encouragement. And I want you to notice that Paul goes on to say, the household of Stephanus, verse 15, they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Now, I think this is really powerful because we live in a culture that's a lot like the Corinthian culture. Uh, we love to claim our freedom. And we do not want to be subject or to submit to another human being. In fact, it's probably one of the most uh, offensive things that we could talk about. And I get it. There has been a lot of abuse of power. I, we, we saw this in the uh, report from the Southern Baptist Convention this week on sexual abuse. Our own denomination wrote a beautiful paper that was just published about domestic abuse. Uh, we see uh, over and over again the abuse of power in the church. We see the abuse of power in politics. We see the abuse of power in arts and in entertainment and business and in education and even in our marriages. The abuse of power is everywhere. And therefore, this idea to be subject or to submit to another person is maybe the worst thing that we could talk about in our climate. But I want you to notice that as Paul talks about this, he says, they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints to be subject to such as these. In Paul's mind, submission or subjection is actually a good thing. But what would make submission or subjection a joy? What would actually make it good? What would make it possible? And what Paul is saying is this, knowing that you're loved. Knowing that someone actually loves you. That they're not using their power to use you, to manipulate you, or to exploit you. But notice what Stephanus' family was. They were devoted to you. They were devoted to you, meaning that they love you, that they're willing to put you above themselves. And to follow someone who's willing to put you in front of themselves gives great freedom and gives great joy because you know they care. And so when we think about our leaders, when we think about the leaders we want, what do you really want? Whether it's politically, but especially in the church, what do you want? Do you just want good, powerful, moneyed, successful, smart, charismatic, gifted people that draw people to themselves? Or do you want leaders who are devoted to you and to your well-being, to those who serve you and love you? And what I want you to see is that love 
is a prerequisite for leadership. Love is a prerequisite for leadership in God's church. And this is why we talk about service in the church. Service, not ruling, not power, but serving. And here's the reality. We will never submit to one another, which Paul says to do in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. We will never submit to one another unless we know we are loved by one another. And this is why Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. Right? Let all that you do be done in love. Would you say that with me? Let all that you do be done in love. And that's the point of this table. When we come to this table, it just reminds us that Jesus has done everything, and he's done everything in love. And this is why, as Christians, we delight to submit to Jesus. This is why we're willing to entrust our lives into his loving hands, because we believe that we have a God who loves us, a God who's not exploiting us or demanding of us, a God who is devoted to us. A God who's willing to give his life for us. A God who died for us so that we might live. A God who's coming back for us so that we might live and dwell with him. That's what our God is like. And that's what this table shows us. And the table is an invitation to give yourself to Jesus. Why would you give yourself to Jesus? Look at the bread again. The body of Christ given freely for you. Look at the cup again. The blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of your sins. We do this week after week after week because we forget. But we do it week after week after week to remind us that we are loved by God. And we eat and we drink so that his love for us might strengthen us. That we might become a people who more and more learn to love God and learn to love our neighbor as he has loved us. And therefore let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Will you say that one last time with me? Let all that you do be done in love. <laughs>